Hello and welcome back to another of the sporadic editions of the album years. It's been another gap longer than we intended, um, but not as long as it was last time, at least. Uh, so last time, Tim, we, we did 2006 and you suggested this time we go back 20 years and do... 1986, is that correct? I did, yeah. I thought, I mean, the idea was we were going to choose a couple of years that we thought were stinkers, that we thought we'd find about one or two albums we liked, and the rest actually made us physically sick. And um, 2006, as we found out, it really did. I mean, there were stains on the carpet after that podcast. Um, 1986, it turns out, we actually loved. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I'm looking at this list and I'm like, wow. I mean, some of my favourite albums of all time came out this year. It's funny because I, I was doing an interview recently, uh, well, not so recently, but back when I was promoting The Future Bites, and I remember doing an interview with one of the rock magazines, and one of the questions was, why do you think the 1970s was so much better for music than every other decade? Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, I don't think that's true. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, and, you know, you kind of did too, yeah. a little bit older than me, but basically the 80s is when you were discovering most music, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's just such a fantastic decade for music, isn't it? And I think it's fair to say that some of the music, some of the production sounds haven't dated as, as well as those from the 60s and 70s, which have a kind of timeless organic quality, don't they? Yeah. The 80s was very much about, you know, the introduction of digital recording and sampling. So a lot of it sounds a little bit dated. But in terms of creativity, I would argue that it's, it's you know, even above the 70s. I don't know how you feel about that. I think it's equal at the very least. I, mean, I think 60s are as are well. Equal? I mean, yeah, yeah. One of the problems with the 80s is that there were certain production styles that determined everything. And whether that be sort of indie, rock, mainstream pop, R&B, they were the same instruments and technology being used. And so there were certain kind of thinner sounds in the 80s that, you know, made, I don't know, a Wham record sound like a Neil Young record. There were certain problems with it, but creatively, I think it was an amazing decade. And and like you, it was the one that I probably came of age in and, and maybe in some ways still connect with more. But, you know, when I go back sometimes, I'm, I'm amazed at listening to recordings from about sort of 54 onwards that are so beautiful that in some ways we've never bettered certain jazz and classical recordings from the 50s. Um, so I think there are strong... Mm points in almost um, any of these sort of decades, classic decades we're covering. And, and, and obviously now, I think if you're prepared to look a little bit harder, um, there's some fantastically creative music going on. Yeah, I think the difference is it's just not in the mainstream as much as it used to be. Absolutely, isn't it? I mean, these, yeah. Some of, these, some of these albums on this list that we're looking at, which I would say are, you know, amongst some of the greatest records ever made, are both creatively ambitious and... You know, not all of them, but some of them were also tremendous, you know, mainstream pop successes, you know, commercially very, very successful records. And I don't think that's something you can say so much uh, these days. Uh, very rarely you can say that about a really creative record. But what you've just said about the 80s, you know, having a, there being a certain signature sound that was common to whatever genre... Isn't that also true of every decade? I mean, I think that's true of the 70s as well, isn't it? I mean, the certain sounds, whether it was the Hammond organ or the Fender Rhodes or, you know, whatever it was, 
you could hear it in a folk record, a country record, an R&B record, a progressive rock record. So I don't think that's necessarily peculiar to the 80s either. Uh, anyway, I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to that. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think it's, a, it's an interesting point, but I think the difference is that maybe a folk band and a rock band and a soul band, you know, so let's say if a Stylistics and a Pink Floyd album to an extent deployed the same technology, they sound very different, partly because that music in the 70s was very reliant upon the playing of a band. The difference, perhaps, in the 80s is that sometimes the technology took over. So if you take a band like The Stranglers, for example, in the 70s, mm. they're a brilliant quartet. By the mid-80s, you know, they've got an album in 86 out, Dreamtime, which isn't their best, but it's not a bad album. But by that, Jet Black is almost replaced by a Lindrum. You know, he's right. replaced right. by machinery. Right. Some of the bass parts are. So I think that maybe 70s, 60s, 50s music could breathe more because it depended more on instrumentation than it did technology and programming. Yeah, I take your point. I take your point. In fact, it's interesting. There's another band on this list, uh, Wire, that that's also true of. I mean, mm -hmm. Robert Gotobed from Wire was essentially reduced to being a drum programmer, yeah. uh, you know, in, in on the 80s Wire albums, whereas, of course, he'd been a very creative uh, drummer stroke percussionist on the, on the classic 70s records. So let, let's jump right in. I mean, you've, you've actually, you know, in kind of testament to the fact that this year is so strong, you've created a category here called career-defining <laughs> classics. Yes. Um, and in, in this uh, category, you have The Smiths, you have XTC, you have Talk Talk, you have Peter Gabriel, you have Paul Simon, all of whom made what you might call tremendous creative crossover records. And some of their most ambitious records came out in 1986. So let's start with, um, with the Smiths. I mean, a lot of people say The Queen Is Dead is the greatest alternative, you know, indie record ever made. I love it. It's not even my favourite Smiths record. My favourite Smiths record would actually be Strange Ways yeah. or maybe one of the compilations, Louder, Louder Than Bombs being one that springs to mind. But it is an amazing record, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's a group that, that are kind of just peaking, well, what are we saying, three, three albums into their career, they're really yeah. hitting a peak, aren't they? I think it is one of the best. I mean, like you, I actually prefer Strange Ways. Strange Ways is more of a mess in some ways, but it's a really fascinating mess and it's got a couple of... For me, their most creative and moving songs. But the Smiths, this is the Queen is Dead is an album where the Smiths still sound like the Smiths. Isn't yes, it? I mean, I yeah. think Strange Ways is an album where they're kind of reaching out. You know, there's even a track on that record where Johnny's not playing any guitar on it at all. In fact, the first yeah. track on the record. But here, it's still very much an indie guitar band, quote unquote but making one of the definitive indie guitar records of all time. And, and some of Morrissey's funniest, wittiest, and darkest lyrics as well, isn't yeah. it, on this album? I think it's definitely where they come together. You know, it's a great studio album. There's, there's a little bit of filler. You know, frankly, Mr Shankly is never going to be my favourite Smith's track. But it does have some wonderful, powerful moments. And yes, some of his most affecting lyrics. And the thing, again, that we've always said about Morrissey is that he will undercut this seriousness. There's almost kind of adolescent maudlin quality with some fantastic jokes so you know he was always there are some great more. jokes on this record aren't there yeah. yeah and also that obviously that the you know you you kind of refer to frankly mr shankly being a slighter piece shall we say but yeah. i mean the album finishes with something that that arguably could be perceived as even slighter some girls are bigger <laughs> than others 
I but really it's brilliant. Like it's so beautiful. I know it's so beautiful. It's so affecting, isn't it? Even though it's essentially a one gag lyric, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it does feel like they sort of were struggling to come up with material and just well, sort of knock that together at the last it, minute. It's it really works. Yeah, it's tasteless. It's childish. There's nothing to it lyrically. But there's something about it that completely works and floors you. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, and in a way, it's a kind of a brilliantly nonchalant ending to what is their big statement. It's a, I mean, it's basically a band that could do no wrong, no matter what they did. It just, came, it just sort of happened to come off in yes. a positive way, yeah. didn't it? So then, then we go... Um, now, we've talked about this band many times i don't think they've quite made the you know the the david sylvian robert fripp brian eno list and they there i go naming all three straight <laughs> off to get them out of the way but mark hollis and talk talk have certainly been regular touchstones on, on yeah. this on this show and i think we might have even talked about the color of spring which for me is their masterpiece which came out this year when we were talking about some of the other records because i think we both feel that there is, and again, this is something we've alluded to several times in the show, there is a point sometimes with a band when they're in transition mm -hmm. where they have the best of what's been and the best of what's to come in perfect balance. Yeah, And this is absolutely the poster child for that phenomenon for me, The Colour of Spring. They're still writing pop music, but they're also moving towards that more organic, more spiritual quality that, that almost comes, you know, you mentioned those 50s jazz records, that jazz, 50s jazz yeah, aesthetic yeah. that's going to come in on the spirit of, of Eden and those kind of records. And that isn't here, but there is something else here, something with much more integrity, much more ambition, much more we couldn't give a fuck if people like this. Yeah. Um, and in doing so, it seems like they make their masterpiece. And this record, of course, still has some big hit singles on it. Life's What You Make It. This, for me, is one of the greatest records ever made. Talk Talk still being a pop band, but one of the most sophisticated pop records, I think, ever made. This is a great fusion of the best of what they've done beforehand, which was being, you know, a sort of earworm electro pop band and the poetic, organic masterpieces that um you know certainly laughing stock um is perhaps the pinnacle yeah i mean the one thing they get right on this i think is the sound as you've said i think there are a couple of albums around this time that are reclaiming that kind of 50s 60s 70s organic quality and this is one of them and of course they go on to develop that far far further on the next two albums spirit of eden and laughing stock but the drum sound on this is immediately compelling and immediately different from everything around right. it. Because, yes. you know, as we've yes. said, even the indie albums of the day were sounding remarkably processed and artificial. And suddenly they come up with this album that is bursting with organic flavour, but also, and I guess this is what you're saying about the transition and using the best of what came before and what comes afterwards, is it has a kind of digital purity which is very 1980s but it has a really rough organic heft to the sound of the drums to the sound of the double bass and they're bringing in some quite exotic instrumentation as well aren't they yeah and you're right but that's interesting to note the drum sound because the drum sound on the color of spring is completely dry and very organic in contrast to almost everyone else's adoption of the big 80s gated reverb sound, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, big stadium reverbs. Are re you know, you listen to something like Songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears, for example, them massive, massive arena reverbs on everything, especially mm. the drums. And here we have a record which strips the drums right back to a very dry, very close sound, 
which has more in common with the 70s mm-hmm. and even some of those 50s jazz recordings. And the palette of sounds, we've got Hammond organ here, we've got choir, we've got harmonica, we've got a lot of things that you wouldn't associate with the 80s in that Mm. sense. And yet you're right, there is something still quintessentially quite 80s-like about it, but all the best, in the the best possible Mm. sense for me, creativity, um, ambition, but still in the service of great pop music. And... I think another great example of this, so we can come straight onto this, Peter Gabriel So is exactly the same, isn't it? It's another artist that's kind of transitioning from being perhaps more ambitious mm. to being more accessible, more commercial, more mainstream, but getting the balance exactly right on this record. I mean, this record blew me away. I remember hearing Sledgehammer, the, yeah. the leading single off the record. So, wow, that's Peter Gabriel, but my goodness me, he really pulled it off. It's a really great piece basically soul R&B with, you know, put through the Gabriel filter. There's still the use of the Fairlight and stuff in there, which is a very, very signature sound for him. So this is another record that kind of fits into that Color of Spring mould, isn't it? In the sense that it's sort of a, a perfect point to yeah. get both the pop sensibility and the ambition from an artist. And I think as well, you're right, that there is an R&B soul quality in both of those artists. I mean, Gabriel, in a sense, was making his work more accessible. And I still think three and four are, along with passion, his masterpieces. And he was moving towards something more natural. I think you you can tell this in his voice, that when he's singing certain tracks on three, a bit like Bill Nelson on Red Noise, there's an aspect of aping that kind of new wave vocal style on certain pieces. And on so you can tell that this is just Peter Gabriel. It's almost like, again, that Mike Yarwood and This Is Me. And he's actually pulling from all of the influences that excite him and singing incredibly naturally. Whereas I think Talk Talk, if anything, I think they'd come from a much more commercial background. I mean, what was interesting about Colour of Spring is they could have gone anywhere because actually, you're right, Tears for Fears is a good point that they could have gone Songs from the Big Chair just as easily as down what eventually became Laughing Stock. And so you're right that these two artists coming from completely different backgrounds make quite similar albums in a sense in terms of the sort of sonic vocabulary and that brilliant fusion of a natural accessibility and still some quite experimental, exploratory ideas. See, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Songs from the Big Chair, which came out the previous year, which is a masterpiece in its own right, um, after that record, I think Roland heard The Colour of Spring and was very influenced by that when, he made, when they made the follow-up, Seeds of right. Love, which again is bringing in live instrumentation, more of an organic sound, there's harmonica on that record, there's Hammond Dorgan on that record. So I think The Colour of Spring became a very influential record for, for the sort of thinkers, the people that were really yeah. listening to music and thinking about music and... Um, in the same way that a band like the Blue Nile did, you know, yeah. in their own small way. They were never a big success in terms of commercial sales, but they were influencing a lot of the other musicians around them. And I think Hollis and Gabriel both were examples of that. So there's three, you know, three masterpieces straight off. The, yeah. the Queen is Dead, The Colour of Spring. And so here's another one, Skylarking by XTC. You know, we're both big XTC fans. We both talked about XTC on the show before. This is a, this is a bona fide masterpiece. And, you know, it came out of a very sort of... A, turbulent relationship between Todd, Todd Rundgren as famously documented a turbulent relationship between Todd Rundgren the producer and particularly Andy Partridge the primary songwriter mm. but what came out of it was something again which sounds like it almost doesn't belong to the 80s does it it has an almost 60s summer of love idyllic 
kind of quality to it. And, you know, just some of the band's greatest songs and mm. that conceptual continuity the record has, the way Todd structured it, almost like the passing of a day, starting in the morning, moving through the... And then ending with Sacrificial Bonfire at the end. This is just one of the great records, I think, regardless of when it was made. One of the great records and arguably the, the greatest XTC record of all. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, I think once more, if we're going to compare it to Color of Spring and So, I think why this works is because it's a band who seem comfortable with their influences. They released Dukes of Stratosphere, I think, a year earlier. And in some ways, people were mm. expecting perhaps a more psychedelic pastiche album, which they didn't get. And this is um, a fusion of the best of Rungren, the best of XTC. Colin Moulding and Andy Partridge are on wonderful form as songwriters. It seems kind of more relaxed and more honest and more open. And as you say, Rungren has given them this framework that actually makes it appear all the more profound actually you know this is a work of blissful pop on occasion but it has mm. um a real sense of it being you know quite an emotional song cycle um mm. and you know dave gregory's arrangements as well i think we've got to give him a lot of credit for, yeah, for the way this yeah. album sounds yeah. and it, it what's interesting about it for me is that it sounds better than any todd rungren album has ever sounded yes Yes, yeah. Um, never never know, the and, greatest high fidelity, his records. Yeah. <laughs> no, and this actually sounds great. Um, so, so it is quite interesting. And, and yes, once more, it kind of hits this thing where they're fantastically melodic, but they are not flinching in terms of being honest to their influences, mm. whether that be avant-garde jazz or certain Beach Boys or certain progressive elements. Everything seems to be coming together. And... Obviously, whereas I think Colour of Spring and So were made in slightly more joyful circumstances, I know that this was a real struggle to make. Well, it's interesting also, uh, you, you kind of alluded to this, is that I think two things have kind of conspired to take a lot of the more angular aspects out of XTC on Skylarking. Firstly, Todd, I think, is influenced, but also the fact they have done the Dukes of Stratosphere in the meantime. And they've also they've almost legitimised to themselves the influence of the 60s. So if you listen to the previous album, The Big Express, it's still mm. very angular. It's kind of yeah. very easy to admire, but harder to love. And all that changes with Skylarking, maybe because of the Dukes, maybe because of Todd. It's a very warm, embracing, inviting record. Immediately yeah. you're kind of sucked in. And I think that's what makes it such a masterpiece among, among, in their catalogue. And it's such a shame the timing for it, of course, was not right at all. It was it was largely ignored uh, at the time, but it has gone on to be seen in many ways as the crown jewel in, in the band's catalogue, which I is think interesting. it led... I mean, cause obviously Dukes did phenomenally well. I think it kind of led to America embracing XTC. Mm. I think it did better in America and Dear then... Dear God, yeah. Yeah, and Oranges and Lemons, of course, was huge in, in the States, so I think that's where they developed their, their American audience. I mean, I, I really like the predecessors. I mean, Big Express, and in particular Mama, which I think is a beautiful record. Now, Mama yeah. does have that kind of slightly pristine... 80s sound but you know love and a farm boys wages regardless of how it sounds it's still one of my favorite pieces you know so i think oh it's a brilliant record yeah yeah you know i think those albums were unjustly neglected and skylarking you're right i think coming from a british perspective it was neglected in the papers suddenly i you know i remember andy partridge interviews at the time and he said well yeah to virgin we're now just their resident eccentrics like henry cow were in the 70s you know it's almost like okay mm. we got them on the label and there were you know artists 
artists like David Sylvie and XTC who'd suddenly become those slightly more difficult, willful artists that Virgin would keep because they sold just about enough and had a mm. relatively good reputation, but they were not going to be given the budgets that other bands were. So for, there's four masterpieces. Here's another one, uh, Graceland, another career-defining classic masterpiece, Graceland, Paul Simon's Graceland. Now, I only, I must admit, I only know the singles. I can't say I've ever listened to the record and, and hope all the way through. Mm. Hopefully you have, Tim, and you can speak <laughs> with some authority about this. But I, but I also know it's, it's considered, and probably rightly so, considered to be a career-defining masterpiece. So tell us uh, well, about Graceland. See, I can't really go into great depth, so I do have the deluxe version of Graceland, and I did buy it at the time and like it. Partly because, again, what's interesting is, you're entirely right, these are career-defining masterpieces. And going back to a couple of previous albums, what's interesting, I think, with Colour of Spring and So, is that actually those albums defined, in, I think, So's case, if you listen to any number of albums from about 86 to probably 1992 in the more mainstream pop M.O.R. field, Sting, for example... Everything has got the stink of so on it. And the same, I think, with Colour of Spring, when you're the listening... Stink of the so. stink <laughs> of so is on it. You know, you listen to Sting, Nothing Like the Sun, that's got the stink of so on it. And then when you listen to, say, Colour of Spring, you can hear where other... You know, Rain Tree Crow, you can hear of heard this. And you're right, I think, Seeds of Love, Tears for Fears, another group. Now... The XTC Skylarking, I think, was important for their reputation, not necessarily um, in terms of influencing other artists, maybe because it's so difficult to imitate Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. Graceland, a little like so, was one of those albums that had this massive impact on the sort of mainstream creative pop. Graceland is very good, but what my point was, I've just gone all around the houses to say my point was, these are all creative. You really funny. have, yeah. I've really gone all around the houses yeah. to say this. It's, you're going to say it's the introduction of world music into mainstream it's pop. Is that what you're going to say? It's the introduction of world music into pop, <laughs> is what's happening in Graceland. Which it kind of is, isn't it? No. But it kind of is, isn't it? No, because Neil Diamond on Rooty Toot Manuscript, or whatever it was called, he was working with... Afro rhythms in 1970. No, come on, let's get real, Tim. Tim. Come on, Graceland suddenly made world music very, very, very popular in mainstream culture. Joni Mitchell, Hissing a Summer Lawns. Okay, forget it. Forget it. (laughs) Peter Gabriel. You're not taking my point. Peter Gabriel 3. No, you're right. In mainstream, I remember, because I had an argument. Thank you. I, in fact, Thank you, I'm right, yes. In the 80s, I had this very argument as this woman said, oh, I mean, we wouldn't have heard all of these things if it weren't for Paul Simon. And saying, but what about Kate Bush, The Dreaming? What about Peter Gabriel, 3 and 4? What about Beaver and Krause? What about Neil Diamond? You already know the answer to your own question, Tim, here. You already know the answer to your own question. Graceland definitely made these things like popular in, you know, on daytime television. You know, yes. Let's the Richard and Judy of their generation would have probably been listening to Graceland by no. Paul Simon. They wouldn't have been listening to Gabriel's Three and Four or Dreamland. What about Chris, dreaming? The about, dreaming. Sorry. Yeah. What about Crispy Ambulance? Have you heard them? No. Okay. Damn no, they that. wouldn't. So, yeah, no. I, what my roundabout point was, was that these are career-defining masterpieces and they're all good. You know, Boy in the Bubble, one of the best lyrics that he's ever written. And what Simon has this ability to do, I think Simon is like 
Joni Mitchell and Randy Newman, probably one of my favourite lyricists ever, that he manages to make complicated ideas flow effortlessly. You know, a track like America mm. from his Simon and Garfunkel days. And the lyrics mm. on this, the lyrics on this, as somebody might say, are top-notch Simon. And his use of... Um, this time he's, he's using more kind of a township African, you know, South African influence. It's fantastically well integrated. So it's it's a really enjoyable album, one of his best. But this is my point that I'm not making. All of these career-defining masterpieces, I actually kind of prefer some of the ones before <laughs> it or after. So, for example, Laughingstock, I probably prefer Talk Talk. Three and Four and Passion, I probably prefer Gabriel. I really loved Hearts and Bones by Paul Simon, the album before this, which is more of a an 80s singer-songwriter album, but really touching to me. It's, it's perhaps closer to um, Hegira by Joni Mitchell. It's a more timeless album. And um, yeah, the same with The Smiths, Strange Ways I prefer. So weirdly enough, these are all career-defining masterpieces that we're talking about. Mama, I might, you know, might just about have... The Edge for me, just in terms of its emotional impact, not in terms of it being a better album. Okay, well, that's just you, isn't it? That's just you. No, I mean, I I see what you're saying. I mean, for me, The Colour of Spring and Skylarking are probably my favourite records by both of those artists. But anyway, um, you've got another one on the list here and another one I don't know. (laughs) An artist I'm constantly embarrassed to not know more of the catalogue, which is Macca, Paul Macca, (laughs) Paul McCartney, Press to Play. I've never heard it. Um... Is that the one that Eric Stewart from 10CC was involved yeah. in? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I actually put this in partly as a joke because of your response to McCartney 2. It is not a career-defining masterpiece. It was his lowest-selling oh. studio album up to that point. But it is a good album. You know, it's it's better, I think, than Tug of War and a couple of the preceding albums. And it's Macca's most 80s-sounding album. It really is that 1980s Macca album in the same way that... Neil Young's Landing on Water is his 80s sounding album. But a little like Neil Young's Landing on Water, it's actually pretty good. There's some good songs. Macca seems to enjoy it. Um, So, no, I would not call this a career defining masterpiece, but it is one of those albums that's definitely worth hearing and not putting underneath the carpet with all of the dirt. So it it occupies an interesting and unique place in his catalogue. I mean, you know, I love this idea of seeing an artist's whole, you know, career as a continuum of work and every record kind of has its own personality and its own signature and its own reason yeah. to exist. What would be more boring than if Paul McCartney was still making records that sounded like he was making in the 70s in 1986? I mean, that would be just more of the same, isn't it? And the point is that this may not be a complete artistic success, but it is something different. It is something that reflects the time it was made in and it yeah. has a unique you know, kind of position in his oeuvre, in his catalogue. And I, you know, I like, I sometimes like that about albums that I don't necessarily love, but I love the fact they exist. It's, uh, you know, a it's a good album. I mean, I mean, arguably it's as good as the, um, is it Flowers in the Dirt? The one that followed that got a lot of press. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Which is good. Really Flowers in the Dirt is, is one of these things where it was hailed as his comeback because he'd co-written some songs with Elvis Costello. And... Half of the album is good. Half of it is in the press-to-play territory. It seems as if he's not quite so sure where he should go, whereas press-to-play is 100% in for a penny, in for a pound. This is my 1980s art pop statement. Okay, great. Press-to-play. 
the album the Beatles could have made. So we move on to there. I mean, there are some more masterpieces coming up. I'm looking down yeah, the list yeah. here. You've got, you've got different. You've got some uh, um, some in other categories, but there are more masterpieces from this year, no question. But let's go through some of the other categories you've got here. Post punk evolutions. You have um, album by Public Image Limited, which was yeah. kind of a reinvention in its way, wasn't it? I mean, that was yeah, yeah. John John basically left on his own, but he didn't hook up with a bunch of uh, faceless, you know, sort of session musicians and producers. He was hooking up with people like Bill Laswell, Ryuichi Sakamoto, Steve Vai, I think, is on this album. But it's it's a fantastic... I remember thinking the single from it, Rise, was a, was a wonderful sort of comeback, uh, a mm-hmm. comeback track, you know, really put him back on the map. Um, and it's a slicker sound. It's a slicker mm. kind of aspect of Public Image Limited. But it's a, but it's one that again really seems to adopt the sound of the times, yeah, uh, very successfully. You know, redefining Public Image in a sort of nineteen eighty six way and really pulling it off. I remember in, in its own way, loving it just as much as I'd love Metal Box and and the first album and. Well, maybe not as much, but but certainly in the fact that it was a more kind of accessible side to John Lydon without necessarily sacrificing, you know, again, the creativity. No, I mean, Sakamoto's on it as well, I think. I mean, you're right. What's interesting about this album... I think Said just... that. Oh, did you? Sorry. S- did say that, yeah. <laughs> listen. I, I apologise. Listen when I'm speaking. <laughs> Back of the class, yeah. Anyway, sorry, carry on. So, yes, Saka is on it, as I believe he's known to his friends. Saka. Yeah, it's great. I mean, what's interesting about this album, I think it links with another album from this year, actually, that there's infected in that it's a real state-of-the-art 1986 big production but actually Mm. it's got its roots in sort of early 70s heavy rock you know and I think that when um he was talking about this Lydon was alluding to the fact that he loved things like Cream, Led Zeppelin (laughs) and in some ways you could argue this is like a sort of night because the album sounds massive and it's a bit like a 1980s remake of Kashmir seven times over. There's that real sense of pummeling. It's got the John throughout. Bonham it's got the John Bonham big drum sound, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And and the same I remember when, you know, when Matt Johnson uh, did Infected, he was saying that he was going back and listening to things like Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull, things that had got him excited about music in the first place. And although you can't necessarily hear those influences on Infected, it does have a certain pummeling rock quality and it's almost as if Lydon and Johnson were kind of rediscovering their youth but totally reinventing it within the framework of 1980s. Yeah in fact it also another fantastic record that came out this year yeah. Even on the periphery artists were producing interesting stuff you know they were still at some kind of creative high and as, as I said before you know something like The Strangler's Dreamtime it isn't their greatest album but they're still writing some fantastic songs and they're still evolving with the time. And I suppose why I had this post-punk evolutions is that in particular with Public Image and maybe Big Audio Dynamite, some of the punk pioneers really were throwing away their own rule books and making totally fresh, eclectic sounds. And I always thought Big Audio Dynamite, you know, very underrated band from that era. And also you've got Wire on the list, although this isn't an album, this was their comeback EP, the Snake Drill EP. I think Ideal Copy came out the year after. That's another band you could say exactly that of, isn't it? I mean, Wire in some senses were, you know, they made the most intelligent, quote unquote, punk record of all time. 
uh, at the time of punk. But here they're coming back and redefining themselves using using a lot of technology. Yeah. I think they were very conscious of the fact they weren't going to rely on their past, that they were yeah. going to reinvent themselves. So this is a, ter- a terrific kind of like statement of intent in this in this four track EP that comes out. The Fall now the Fall basically is a band that didn't necessarily respond to the times, are they? But or did they? Or did they? Because the records did become a little bit slicker, didn't they? And a little bit more. Uh, they didn't have that shambling quality that some of the early records had had. You know, uh, Ben Sinister from this year. I'm not yeah. familiar with that record, but I know some of the other records from the from the late 80s, which I really like, you know, yeah. Curious Orange and, and uh, The Friends Experiment. So th- did they respond to the 80s? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think they did. I think the productions again became far glossier and, as you say, far smoother. And so what Marky Smith's doing is becoming more palatable. And I think this is the thing, isn't it, that that production, in a sense, was a great leveller that you could almost listen to The Fall in the same way you could listen to Tears for Fears on the radio because of the dynamics and the production and a certain smoothness. Um, so, yes, to a degree, I think there is um, an argument that The Fall were kind of responding to the times and, and they got more commercial as, as the decade went on and obviously they kind of collided quite nicely with Manchester because I think Happy Mondays always had a slight element of the fall to their For sound sure, yeah. and of course they sort of emerged as a real creative force I mean you know I think their masterpiece is going to be bummed in 1988 yeah. but yeah. you can see that the fall suddenly kind of have a more commercial context to bounce off so i i think their records kind of did evolve i mean snake drill ep i I mentioned it on the list because it was one of my favorite records of that entire year and i still think it's possibly my favorite wire release of all and controversially perhaps my favorite era of wire is that snake drill ideal copy of bell is a cup um, because I think they were just as inventive as they'd been in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but they really made their mark on the technology of the 80s. You know, they, they didn't seem diminished in any way to me on those albums. Is that controversial? I think those records are pretty highly rated, aren't they? Particularly Ideal Copy. Yeah, I thought they were considered in the same vein as McCartney too, but maybe I'm wrong. Well... Nothing is considered in the same vein as McCartney too in this house, I can tell you that. But anyway, well, I think we, it's, it's probably worth pointing out that when Tim says the fall became more commercial and radio-friendly, this is a relative concept, <laughs> of course. Um, so moving on, we've also got Elvis Costello and the Attractions released two albums this year, King of America yeah. uh, and Blood and Chocolate. One of the best gigs um, I ever saw, I saw him on the Blood and Chocolate tour, and I, to this mm. day, he's on Liverpool Empire, one of the best gigs I've ever seen. I mean, the Attractions are a great band, very musical, very mm. responsive. Blood and Chocolate is certainly one of his most dissonant and experimental records and well worth listening to. We've also got New Order's Brotherhood this year, um, Killing Joker, you referred to earlier, Bryce and the Thousand Sons. So things are in pretty rude health, really, in terms of the the post-punk groups, you know, transitioning through uh, into the 80s. Certainly, you know, bands like Wire and Public Image really, you know, hitting a hitting mm. a new peak in that sense. So then you've got the category um, ZTT. Now, I think it's fair to say that ZTT... They were on the turn, weren't they? Uh, I mean, ZTT were a couple of years earlier, all dominant with, you know, Frankie, Propaganda, Mm -hmm. the first Art of Noise record. I mean, they really changed things up. The whole Trevor Horn 
production aesthetic and Stephen Lipson too really changed the way people were listening to music. I mean, people would make jokes about not being able to get Trevor Horn to produce their record on their, in their, <laughs> you know, in the credits of their of their albums because he he was almost ubiquitous. But here we've got what I think were pretty much considered to be underachieving records at the time. Liverpool by Frankie Goes Hollywood is the yeah. follow up to to the massive Welcome to the Pleasure Dome record, or at least the singles off it were, mm-hmm. were massive. And Invisible Silence, which was the follow-up to, to Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise, which mm-hmm. unfortunately was a record that had no contribution from Trevor Horn or, or Paul Morley. And it's not a mm-hmm. bad record. It's not yeah. a bad record. It's just a less unique and innovative-sounding record, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, the Art of Noise album, I think you're right, you know, that there was the element that there was a slight sort of mould on the surface of ZTT, certainly in the public perception in this era, but it arguably more than even perhaps Gabriel 3 and 4 defined the sound of the 80s. You know, those ZTT productions, Frankie Goes <laughs> to Hollywood and so on, and Art of Noise, certainly their use of samples, was ubiquitous at this stage. Um, I like Invisible Science. I think it is a strong album and I like like Liverpool too well I'm about to say Liverpool I love I don't like Liverpool I think it is the best Frankie O's Hollywood album and one of the great neglected albums of the 80s you know whereas Welcome to Pleasure Dome got all of the attention and it's a good album this is a really good album you know they sound much more like a band everything is epic it reminds me a bit of Public Image album in that it's got a massive sound throughout, but this one also has gorgeous textures. You know, this is a rock album filtered through Slave to the Rhythm, Grace Jones. I just think it's really powerful stuff. I know it's not. I like it. I mean, I, I don't think Frankie Goes Hollywood ever, really ever made a great record. They made great singles, just mm. phenomenal singles. You know, some of the greatest flashbulb moments in pop culture, you know, things like Relax and Two Tribes. And there are some great singles on this record. I love Rage Hard. I love I love Warriors of the Wasteland and all the various mixes. I don't think half the record is really as good as the other half. Um, but um, you're right. I think it, it, it gets a bad rap, obviously, because it came at a time when obviously their star was massively in decline. Mm. The knives were out. So it was kind of doomed to failure. And also the fact that Trevor Horn kind of basically washed his hands of the band and just yeah. said, Stephen Lipson, you go, you go and make this record with them. I can't be bothered with them anymore. So there is a sense of Trevor kind of distancing himself from both Frankie and the art of noise here. But they're both, as you say, they're both good records, if, mm. if not great records. <laughs> Electro-pop industrial, we have got... Well, the Pet Shop Boys' first album came out this year. I had forgotten that. Please, what a great record. What a great sound that was. How does one explain how a Pet Shop Boys kind of fit in? In fact, we talked about this before, didn't we? This kind of combination Mm -hmm. of archness with incredibly emotionally bare, uh, touching uh, that very touching sentimentality... And they just somehow pulled it off. And it was all there, wasn't it? Right from the very first single. Well, I think a bit like Brian Ferry, I was going to say that there's a connection with sort of Roxy music in the sense that Roxy were there from the beginning. Although that debut album is quite raw and wildly inventive, they were there in terms of their identity and ideas. And I think Petrol Boys were, for the same reason that they were actually slightly older, that Tennant had been a journalist for many years, you know, smash hits and... um, had quite a lot to draw on. And I think that what they did, they made Electropop quite fashionable again in an era when it had really sort of faded. And I think partly it's because there's a very 
frail, organic <laughs> quality in his voice. You know, his voice is closer to Al Stewart and Roy Harper than it is Mark Almond. And he has this very sort of affecting, frail singer-songwriter quality. And although they used all of the tropes of electropop, there was nothing at relentless. I don't know why, even in the, the use of strings, electronic strings, there was something quite sweeping about their music. So I think there's something more sweeping, something more frail, and maybe as simple as just something more mature about them. Yeah, and it, I think you're right. The the songs almost have that kind of observational quality that you would associate more with the generation of singer-songwriters from the 70s, mm. doesn't it? I mean, songs like Opportunities, Let's Make Lots of Money. I mean, it's a very 80s subject matter, but the way the lyrics are constructed has got that very kind of 70s singer-songwriter, bed-sitter, observational quality. Mm. And still to this day... Um, their music has got the Pet Shop Boys kind of blueprint behind sure. everything that they do. Um, still that quality in his lyrics and in his performance and also in the music. We've got mm. Black Celebration by Depeche Mode this year, which I know is your favourite yeah, um, yeah. Depeche album. It might be mine. I mean, I love I love music for the masses and I love, I love um, Violator too. But this is the beginning of a real purple patch for them, isn't it? They're really hitting a peak, aren't they, with being the sort of cerebral electro-pop industrial crossover kind of band that we kind of think of them as now. Yeah, and like Talk Talk, they kind of reinvented themselves because you could argue that Depeche Mode and Talk Talk really, <clears throat> certainly in the early 80s, were perceived as much more standard electro-pop artists. And by 86, they are artists. And, you know, this is, is as dark and brooding as it is accessible and exciting and it's, it's quite funny because I've got personal stories around certain albums and um, I remember once listening to it in headphones and a blind man was coming across a bridge and slipped and I saved him from falling into the river while listening to Black Celebration so that's what I always have in mind when I listen to it well there you go it's funny how certain albums can always bring back you know things that are not related to the album but you you kind of remember exactly where you are i remember buying peter hamill's nadir's big chance in virgin megastore in the mid 80s and it was pissing down with rain that day and by the time i got home into hamill Hempstead, i had a terrible cold mm -hmm. and i spent the next two weeks in bed taking this awful kind of pink medicine which I hated and I, I, I just loathed having to take it. And I always associate that album still to this day when I hear it. And it's a brilliant record. Mm. I still associate that record with feeling like shit and having to drink this <laughs> awful sludgy pink medicine, which is a shame because it's, it it's a joyous next time, punk. You know, next time I listen to it, I'm just going to have gloopy pink medicine in exactly. my mind. <laughs> So you've you've managed to mention David Sylvian about five times already in the yeah. podcast. So let, let's let's go on. So probably people playing the drinking home again now will be well and truly hammered. But, yeah. So let let's push them over the edge and actually talk about the album this year. Now we've got some more masterpieces. So in the art pop category, Gone to Earth. It's a great record. It's uh, for me. It's part of a again that idea of it being part of a continuum yeah, yeah. of work. I think I prefer Brilliant Trees before it, and I like um, Songs from the Beehive that came after it also more. Yeah. But this is, a again, it's a wonderfully unique entry in his catalogue. Yeah. In some respects, it is a little bit him kind of coasting. 
doing the sort of sensitive ambient soundscape thing. But we've also got the second record of this album, which is this uh, complete instrumental ambient record. I love this record. It's a great record. I wouldn't say it's, it's, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a top three Sylvian record for me. But again, I love the facts in the catalogue. And I'll very often reach to put this one on and really enjoy it. What's your take on it? Yeah, no, I mean, I loved it at the time and still love it. And I thought it was kind of a continuation. You're right, there's Brilliant Trees and there was the um, EP in between Brilliant Trees. Words of the the Shaman. And this, and they kind of form, I think, a, a great trilogy. And this kind of took ideas from Brilliant Trees even further into even more epic territory. So things like Before the Bullfight and Wave... I think are amongst his best this le- pieces. Yeah, I think I think I think the problem I have. Sorry to interrupt you, Sim. The problem I have with this record, maybe why it's not as strong as the albums that came before and after it, is there's no songwriting rigor on this record yeah, at yeah. all. It's very it's very runny and very loose. Whereas I think there's still great songs on Brilliant Trees, and of course some of the best songs he ever wrote on on Beehive, which Beehive, is to come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're entirely right. I think the pieces were providing the foundation for brilliant performances from the likes of Nelson, Robert Fripp, if we can get in the drinking game, get your victory gin down your gullet on that one. Um, well, he Ke- is on the record to be He fair. is, yeah. Kenny Wheeler, Steve Jansen and Richard Barbieri, of course, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you know them? I've heard of the, the second guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think you know, um, everyone's... He, listens to, he listens to this podcast, by the way. So we should give a shout out to Richard. <laughs> oh no, we can never say anything. Never say anything rude about Richard on this podcast because he, he's he's the biggest fan ever of, of the, the album. Yes, it's podcast. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two albums this year, essentially two albums from Cocteau Twins, including I think my favourite, Victoria Land. Yes, um, but they they also released the album The Moon and the, the Melodies, which is a collaboration with Harold Bubb, which is a nice record. But I think Victoria Land for me is again I. I I find myself grasping for the word masterpiece. I absolutely think this is a, a beautiful, genius record that, again, pays lip service to the 80s, but also exists completely without, you know, yeah. outside of time in a way. It's a completely timeless record. Um, it has an otherness, an otherworldly quality. I mean, they always did. They always yeah. did. But here they are, four albums into their career. And they've ditched, I think what's really interesting about this album is they've ditched the kind of things that might have dated the previous records, the drum machines and yeah. things. This record is almost beatless, isn't it? It's got, an, it's got a sort of floating ambient textual quality that I think, I'm, I'm guessing probably would stand up better than things like Treasure and, and, and even Heaven or Las Vegas, which is commonly seen as their masterpiece. For yeah. me, Victoria Land is that kind of beautiful, ambient, weightless masterpiece that just exists outside of everything that was going on at the time. I don't know, how do you feel about that? Well, it might be my favourite of their albums as well. And actually, especially for the podcast, I got a vinyl copy of Victoria Land, a brand new one. And I still love it. And I think it's for the reasons you mentioned that I really like what comes before it. So, you know, Treasure is great. I actually think Garland's, I think the the very early stuff with that kind of razor edge, Susie and the Banshees influence... But on this, they are the Cocteau Twins. It's like on the earlier albums, yeah. you can hear aspects of Bauhaus, Susie, aspects the of Cure, Susie, the Bauhaus, Cure. yeah, yeah. They're coming out of that, they're making it their own, they're great albums. This, what the hell is it other than Cocteau Twins? It's their own universe. After this, and I, I don't, you know, Bluebell Knoll's a really lovely album, Heaven or Las Vegas is mm. fantastic, but you can see them maybe blending slightly more with the sounds of the era that's surrounding it, and also getting slightly more consciously accessible. This album is them in a state of timeless 
Bliss, and I think they've only got one collaborator on it. It's the guy from Diff Jazz, I think, might be on it. Um, that's right, yeah, Richard Thomas, yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting, as is, is, is you kind of alluded to there, is that there, there's almost a point at which certain artists achieve their sound. Mm. They kind of throw off all of their influences and they just arrive at a point where they sound completely like themselves. But the downside of that can be the rest of the career seems almost to be, in, in, you know, coasting. Mm-hmm. And is there a sense that that is what happened to the Cocteau Twins, that the Victoria land, they, they kind of arrive at the quintessential sort of recipe, the set of ingredients for mm-hmm. what makes uh, a Cocteau Twins album, albeit this record doesn't have the, the stronger rhythmic element that subsequent yeah. records have and the previous records have. But after this, every record is just, oh, it's a Cocteau Twins record. Very beautiful. And I never really got excited. I liked the records, but I never mm-hmm. got really excited again about the Cocteau Twins after Victoria Land, which I was really excited about because it seemed, again, a step into something else for them. Yeah. But at this point, at this point, the archetype was created, the blueprint was there, and everything else culminating in those Fontana records, which I thought were quite weak. And of course, shortly after they broke up. So I think there was a sense they may have felt the same thing themselves. Is that fair or is that unfair? I think, no, I think it's perfectly fair. I mean, I think, you know, Bluebell Knoll, <clears throat> I would rate very strongly. I mean, I liked that a lot when it came out. But this is the quintessential Cocteau Twins. And there was a sense that they come from quite a razor edge, post-punk background. They enter this state of bliss. And <laughs> arguably by degrees, up to those Fontana records, it sort of becomes a bit mushy, indistinct. They become what people think the band are, perhaps. By the end, uh, they're still really, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? That if you were to listen to Heaven or Las Vegas or even the Fontana albums, if they'd been the only albums that Cocteau Twins ever made, we'd still be talking about the Cocteau Twins. We'd still think they were great. Similarly, if they'd have split up at Treasure, we'd still be talking about the Cocteau Twins. But I think this is the point where they and and, and the odd thing about it is they don't I don't think Simon Raymond appears on Victoria Land because he's he's an essential part of the early sound and later sound. No, you're right. You're right. That that is true. It it does feel almost like a very intimate guitar and voice record. Uh, at least that's my memory. I haven't listened to it mm. for for a few months now, but my memory of it is always as a very intimate essentially guitar Robin and, and Liz basically making making that yeah. record together. It's a very. Sh- I think it's quite succinct. It's like thirty one minutes or something. It's a perfect, yeah, yeah, perfect <clears throat> length. For that well, it's experience. one of those albums that you play again and again and again. I think at this point yes. you're still in classic album territory where lots of albums are thirty one to forty three minutes. Yeah. It's absolutely perfect for for certainly my taste and what I think that a lot of this music needs. You know, the CD age is yet to impinge on these artists where they feel the need to add six tracks for the sake of it, which often dilutes the impact of the statement and of the music. There was a book I remember reading around this time, I think it was something about New Sounds by a guy called John Schaefer, and he was talking about... You know, it's talking about how suddenly this era, things were just fusing naturally. So Philip Glass, Paul Simon, Laurie Anderson... Cocteau Twins, it was all creating this kind of wonderful, genreless world of music. I mean, the bad thing about the book, the one thing it did do was the usual of, of course, in the 60s and 70s, artists tried to combine jazz and classical, but in such a clumsy, naive and juvenile way. That's kind of a, a truism, isn't it? That the, What always sounds the most dated is what was happening almost exactly 10 years or 15 mm-hmm. years before. It takes 20, 25 years for things to come around again. 
So progressive rock and psychedelic music, possibly one of the reasons Skylarking was so ignored by the British press is that it did kind of very clearly wear its 60s psychedelic influences on its sleeve and it wasn't mm. a, a sort of a cynical pastiche. It was actually doing it in a very loving, you know, way. And I think that's true also of this next record on the list, which is um, also a 4AD record, for Filigree and Shadow by This mm -hmm. Mortal Coil, which is unashamedly pretentious it's a double album you talk about the maximalism of seed the seed era that's just about to come well here it is you know already coming around the corner in this massively ambitious double album uh made yeah. by ivo watts russell of, of 4ad who's basically the the person who ran 4ad records mm -hmm. and he had his own kind of musical conceit which was this mortal call and they made three wonderful records and this is the second of those records. This is progressive rock, isn't it? I mean, we talk, you know, we've talked about this before, haven't we, about how certain things are progressive rock by any other name. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. exactly that. And we both know Ivo, so we know he was really into that stuff too. <laughs> of course, yeah. So, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But, of course, it sneaks in under the radar of the press and the media and gets and it, away and it, with it. It does it differently. I, I think what is it? You, you're entirely right. I think progressive rock was at its lowest esteem at this point. And yet many of the greatest albums you could argue from this particular year i mean i would say aspects of color of spring certainly aspects of gone to earth and victoria land and especially filigree and shadow they were progressive in all but name in terms of what they were doing with music the eclecticism the pretentiousness and the reveling in their eclecticism and pretentiousness and being unashamedly themselves so i think that quietly the music had reasserted itself but under different guise and in a different format yeah it, i mean i think you're absolutely right i think you're absolutely right and and i think that's still true today actually that some of the most creative music does you know owe, owe a debt whether it admits it or not to the sort of great explosion of, of ambitious creative music mm. which was kind of creating hybrids you know you talked about the idea of fusing jazz and world music and classical music and blues and all of that folk music all together which is very much the hallmark of, of you know what the Beatles were doing mm -hmm. in the late 60s but then moving forward into the 70s what the great progressive rock artists were doing and here we have other artists still doing it but very much in an 80s context yeah. uh, and very successfully you know as some of these records we talked about doing it very successfully but let's talk about the elephant in the room tim mm -hmm. you talked about this invisible touch by genesis <laughs> where yeah. does that fit into this thing because for all these so-called cool cool kind yeah, of like yeah, reinventions yeah. of ambitious and amb ambition and creativity some of which were by the original generation of so-called progressive musicians yeah, yeah. you gabriels and the hamels what of Genesis themselves, Invisible Touch. How do we rank? How do we rate? I mean, I remember hearing it at the time and quite liking it as a kind of pop record, yeah, great yeah. pop record. Um, I haven't heard it for 30 years, I must admit. But how how does it fit in now to the canon, not just in Genesis, but in the canon, you know, in terms of just rock music in general? It's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, it was incredibly popular. And one of the things I remember at the time was, I think it was Richard Cook, who was an NME journalist who went over to Sounds. He reviewed So and Invisible Touch together and actually gave So one out of five and said that he hated... What? Gabe, indeed. He hated Gabriel's man-child voice and gave Invisible Touch three and said, well, at least his old band, they remember tunes and pop. Bizarrely, Richard Cook, a fashionable journalist who'd worked with the NME, seemed to uh, review these two albums rather differently from how I think they'd be perceived today. I think the thing with Genesis in the 80s 
it's not a favourite band for me, but actually I really respect what they did. I think they very convincingly reinvented themselves, streamlined the sounds and were honest to their influences. Remember, these were guys that grew up loving pop music, loving R&B, loving the Beatles, loving the Beach Boys and evolving that sound to always kind of compete with the era. And it's an interesting thing, I think, from... We were talking about artists that thrived in the 80s and died in the 80s. You know, someone like Neil Young died in the 80s. I mean, he came back at the end, you know, with Freedom, made some great records, but he had a pretty rotten 80s. Same with the rest of Crosby, Stills and Nash. Lots of the artists seemed creatively adrift. And all credit to Genesis, they were absolutely on top of what they did, reinventing themselves. And I don't think it was a sellout because I think they just loved pop music. I mean... It's not going to be anywhere near, you know, my top 50 albums of 1986, but kudos to them. Great record that sold a lot and influenced a lot of mainstream sound. I I, I pretty much agree with you on that. I mean, again, it's not an album I would particularly care to hear again, but I remember thinking it was a great pop record at the time. And Phil Collins is a brilliant pop singer. So I think they pulled it off in a way that most of the bands from the, from the you know, the 70s generation of progressive rock acts never pulled it off the way Genesis did. Well, maybe yes, briefly with 90125 mm-hmm. with a bit of help from the, the two Trevors. But yes. I think that went that went wrong pretty quickly, didn't it, after that? Whereas, And they were kind of having to use outside forces yeah, yeah. To, to help them reinvent themselves. And Genesis weren't. No. They weren't. They were completely reliant only on themselves. And they still managed to pull off this reinvention of a very 80s-centric, slick pop group that Patrick Bateman from American Psycho would, would, would listen to. You've got you know? I was about to mention American Psycho. There's a, <laughs> for, for those yeah. who don't know, in American Psycho, there's the Brett Easton Ellis book, there's this great section where Patrick Bateman, the psycho, talks about his love of contemporary Genesis and how the earlier work, you know, far too quirky, far too strange, but, but this has a certain perfection. And this is the key to him being a psychopath that he likes invisible touch. We've moved on to the, the section which you'd call mainstream. You had invisible touch in the mainstream section. It's, there's another bona fide masterpiece coming up here. And okay. I, I know we both agree. I know we both agree on this record as being a masterpiece and arguably this artist's greatest. I call him the artist. He actually referred to himself as the artist at one point too. Yeah, the yeah. artist formerly known as. But at this time he was still Prince. Oh, I thought he meant Parade. On the Beach by Chris Rea. Sorry. Oh. Not On the Beach by Chris Rea or Controlled by Janet Jackson or okay. Enya by Enya. Although I'm, <laughs> although I'm a bit of an Enya apologist, actually. I think her sound is incredible. Uh, the way she layers voices. Absolutely, I'm a big fan of the album Watermark. Anyway, lots of people, don't they, Tim, talk about Dirty Mind. They talk about Purple Rain. They talk about Sign of the Times, Diamonds and Pearls, the classic Prince albums. Mm -hmm. For me, it's Parade. It's always been Parade. I think that album is his masterpiece. It's genius. It's genius in every respect. It's got the funk. It's got the songs. And the production, you know, we talked earlier on Mm -hmm. about how the Hollis production approach on Colour of Spring was very much out of keeping with the 80s, but still somehow defining it. Yeah. That's totally true of this record too, isn't it? What a strange sound this <laughs> record has, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, you, you know, the, just the use of drums and strings yeah. and an almost ersatz kind of Muzak aspect coming into some of the songs as well. I think the greatest Prince work always had that sort of sound of it almost being like 
a demo that mm-hmm. he just thought was too good to better and he just left it exactly as it was. I mean, you listen to things on Purple Rain and Dirty yeah. Mind, some of the best tracks of Prince, they sound like things that he just never finished or never did, quote-unquote, properly. Yeah. And that's what we love about them because they have the, all the quirks that are slick, overproduced record, which, to be fair, some of his later records have mm-hmm. that for me. They're too slick. They're too overproduced. A lot of what I love about Prince, the grain, the quirks, isn't in those later records. But it's on these records in the 80s. And Parade for me, I mean, what a bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. Mountains, Girls and Boys, Kiss, um, Sometimes, Sometimes It Snows, snows in April. In April. Yeah. One of the great, if not his greatest ballad. Uh, it's just a masterpiece from beginning to end. I think it's clocks in under 40 minutes unlike the sort of more bloated, mm-hmm. I think, Sign of the Times, which, again, I think is a masterpiece, but there's definitely more filler on that for me than there is on Parade. Tim, yeah. wax lyrical about Parade. Totally agree with you. I mean, again, Sign of the Times, I think, could have been as good as this, but it's two times, yeah, the length it should be, I think. You know, got some amazing stuff, but there's a lot of filler on it. Um, what preceded this, you know, Purple Rain is great. Around the World in the Day is great. But when he was trying to be psychedelic or rock in those earlier albums, it was more pastiche. With this, I think it is <laughs> genuine 1980s psychedelia without a reference to the 60s. The production's all over the show. And actually, two of my favourite Prince albums are his soundtracks, and I think they get dismissed because they're soundtracks. So I really like the Batman soundtrack as well. I think that's got some great stuff on mm. it. But this is, for me, the best Prince album because it is definitively 1980s, yet it's got a real air of psychedelic madness. It has aspects of pure groove R&B funk. It has also aspects of kind of 20s kitsch music that yeah. sort of flavours it. And, um, yeah, you know, his most affecting ballad in Sometimes It Snows in April, Kiss, is such an innovative single it's almost like that song is so ubiquitous now. It's it's hard to remember what it was like hearing it for the first time. Mm. Um, and I was just I was just gobsmacked again. You know, it's like he's done it again. Yeah, he's done it again. You know, um, what an incredible sound. So dry in an age where everything had big reverbs. You know, all the product, all the big pop records had big reverbs on everything. This track comes along, which has got no reverb on anything. It's like everything is close up. The drum sounds, the vocal, the guitar. It's all completely dry, like a demo. Mm -hmm. And yet it sounds like nothing else on earth. And it still sounds like nothing else on earth, which, of course, was his genius. One thing I have to pick you up on, Tim. Prince, when Prince did rock or psychedelic, it was pastiche. Bollocks. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. You've got a section here, minimalism, ethereal, and experimental, which obviously is quite a, quite a wide brief here, but I see why you've things like Philip Glass, yeah, Songs yeah. from Liquid Days, Sextet, Six Marimbas, Steve Reich, who we, we adore and we've talked a lot about on this show. Arthur Russell we haven't talked about on, on the no. show. World of Echo. Now, he's an interesting guy. Now, I don't know this record. Is this one of his disco records? Is it one of his experimental chamber classical records? Is it one of, What is it? What is this record? This isn't one of his disco records. It isn't one of his classical records. It's that beautiful in-between where it's, it's almost like um, he's got a very hazy voice, a bit like John Martin's in a way. So it's a bit like if John Martin had tons of echo applied to his voice and then he's got this minimalist cello underneath it. So it's more of a singer-songwriter album, except the arrangements, a minimalist cello and his very dreamy voice. And it's great. Sounds great. 
Sounds great. I'm going to check. I mean, I have some Arthur Russell albums, but but Russell albums, but not this one. So I'm I'm going to check that out. So we've also got Jazz from Hell by Frank Zappa, which is one of his Synclavia records. I have it. It's not one of my favourite Zappa records. It basically mm-hmm. depends how much you love the sound of of. Uh, synthetic orchestras uh, yeah. playing ridiculously complicated music. Um, not my favourite aspect of what Zappa does. But again, you know, going back to this idea that what we love about an artist's catalogue is the fact that every record in it is different. And again, mm-hmm. this is something different again um, in, in the Zappa catalogue that the, those Synclavier albums obviously have their, have their place. Moving on now, here's another masterpiece. And I've mm-hmm. got a feeling you're not, this wouldn't be one of your favourites, yeah, Tim. Master of Puppets by Metallica is an absolute fucking masterpiece, which has cast a shadow, along with Rain in Blood by Slayer, has cast yeah. a shadow over the metal world ever since. Never bettered, arguably never bettered, including by Metallica themselves, uh, catching lightning in a bottle on this record. I just remember, you know, one of the stories I love to tell is about how when I was about 12 years old, forgive me if I've told this story already mm-hmm. on the podcast, I don't think I have. One of the stories I remember is buying Saxon's Wheels of Steel when it came out. And I was a 12 years old, mm-hmm. 1980, Saxon's yeah. Wheels of Steel, an Iron Maiden's debut album, and really loving them. And put, I remember putting on Motorcycle Man, the first track on, on Wheels of Steel, and listening to it and thinking, wow, the 12 years old, I've got to remember I was 12, wow, this is the heaviest music I have ever heard. There's no way. There's no way music could ever get heavier than this. This no. is the this is the ultimate metal heaviness. And within five years, you've got albums like Master of Puppets and Cop by Swans, which yeah. make a, rather a mockery. And of course, <laughs> even Master of Puppets now sounds quite tame compared yeah. to a lot of extreme metal music. I mean, listen to a band like Full of Hell, for example, you know. But Master of Puppets is great because it's metal, it's heavy, it's fast, but it's also, and I hope the heavy metal fans are not going to be disgusted by this, it's also a great pop record. It's fast mm-hmm. and it's heavy, yes, but songs like Battery, the title track, uh, the thing that should not be, these are great songs with great riffs, like those early Sabbath records. The riffs are just like, okay, you've just written all the best riffs. There's no riffs left to be written. Whatever riffs were left to be written, Metallica just wrote them all on Master of Puppets. Uh, whatever ones Jimmy Page and Tony Iommi had left unwritten, now they've been written. And there is that element when you listen to albums like Rain in Blood and Master of Puppets, these seminal metal records from the 80s that completely changed the course of metal music to an extent. Tim, have you got anything to say about Metallica as Master of Puppets? Have you even heard it? I've never heard it. I, that's, that's what I've got no, to say. But I, the only Metallica I've heard, I've heard Enter Sandman, which I really liked, actually, and I've heard Lulu with Lou Reed that they made, which I quite liked. It's a very strange record, and yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I like it too. And again, that idea that's something different in the catalogue. Um, for both of them, Which yeah. is really interesting. Which are for both of them, yeah. So um, so there's another masterpiece for me, Master of Puppets. Right, what else? Let's, let's sort of try and wrap this up, Tim. Uh, so now, Van Morrison, no guru, no method, no teacher. Van, Van was going through a bit of a purple patch in the 80s, he wasn't was, he? He was, yeah. Well, he sort of it's, rediscovered his Astral Weeks muse, that timelessness, that search yeah, for the... Spiritual, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, um, yeah, there are sort of three or four albums in a row. I don't think they're as good as Astral Weeks. I don't think they're as good as Common One, but they're really gorgeous, heartfelt pieces of work. And No Method, No Guru, definitely one of the best of those. I agree. I absolutely agree. I love that, that whole run of records from Inarticulate Speech up to Avalon Sunset particularly. Yeah. 
also on this list, you've got It's Immaterial, Life's Harder Than You Die. Now, I know you're a big fan of this uh, this group, Tim. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've liked what I've heard. I remember the I remember the single from this record, uh, Dr- Driving Away From Home, mm-hmm. was it called? Which That's I remember long. thinking was really good. They occupy a similar place in, in, in the history of music to a band like Blue Nile. Mm-hmm. They never really kind of broke through to the mainstream, did they? But they made this sort of very... They were very much out on their own and creating their own little world. And I guess they have their... I guess they have their sort of fairly obsessive advocates, of which you're one, I'm taking. Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Well, they started off in a much more sort of quirky post-punk pop way, but by the time of the album, they've got their sound. It, it's unusual, you know, it, it's the, the lyrics. I, I always describe it as if, if Raymond Carver lived in Skelnersdale, this is how he'd write, you know. And there's that okay. aspect to a lot <laughs> of the work. Life's Hard is a very different album in that they're drawing from anything from sort of... They wanted to create an English country and Western road song. So they're drawing um, from sort of country music, post-punk, almost a kind of talking heads groove. Um, J.J. Campbell's voice actually has an ethereal quality, a little like Kevin Godley. You know, he's got a very northern pronunciation, but has that kind of Kevin Godley sweetness. This is the one album that sounds like nothing that came afterwards and had the hits. So it had one big hit, one minor hit. After this, they've done two albums. One is called Song. One is called um, House for Sale. And they are just very beautiful, very consistent, ambient singer-songwriter pop one of those, albums. One of those bands a bit like the Blue Nile that make an album every 10 years, yeah, if you're yeah. lucky. If you're yeah. lucky. Yeah. Um, but the last two albums, their companion pieces... And they're very much in that kind of timeless Blue Nile space. This album is very eclectic all over the shop. You know, some of the B-sides as well, they'll have, you know, bizarre little pieces of them with banjos or what have you. So this it's a very playful album, whereas what came after it is quite morose. Some of the lyrics are quite playful, but the overall feeling is quite sad. You know, they, they really are masters of melancholy, whereas on this um it's quite funny in parts and it it certainly is very playful and you know a lot of weird almost kind of flamenco guitar passages as well it's um you know very musical piece of work and and doesn't sound like anything particularly surrounding it really then or now i was gonna i was gonna say they sound like a band that didn't really fit in then and probably still wouldn't now but they're, they're, they're very ripe for rediscovery if you know if you're interested in uh very emotionally very quirky very touching Music, you know, mm-hmm. uh, again, the Blue Nile would fit into that category, wouldn't they? So um, New York, you've got a New York category, only two two entries in this. <laughs> True Stories by Talking Heads, Home and the Brave by Laurie Anderson. Neither their best, in my opinion. No. Um, but obviously both phenomenal, phenomenal artists. Uh, st- you know, still good, I guess. I mean, I, I yeah, can't yeah. say I remember much about True Stories, but Home and the Brave, I remember. Th- it's got language, is a virus on it on that album, hasn't it? It has, yeah, which is uh, great. Yeah, which is, which is a great song, song yeah. Indeed. So the last category really to cover is indeed again some really amazing sort of records coming out from some of our favourite artists this year. Standing up straight by the Wolfgang Press. Mm-hmm. We should talk a lot about the Wolfgang Press on one episode. For me, this isn't the album to talk about. I like I totally this album. Agree, yeah. But I would like to, because I think that again, a bit like you were talking about, it's immaterial. They're a band that always kind of existed outside of everything, um, but managed to carve out this really fascinating catalogue of work. I think when we get to talk about an album like Queer or, mm-hmm. or um, Birdwood Cage, I think it was called, um, those records are really going to be interesting ones to talk about. Throwing Muses, f- is this their first album? I guess it's self-titled, it is, yeah, so yeah. be logical. Yeah. They, 
sounded like nothing else on earth, did they, when they came out? Mm. Uh, still don't. How we describe throwing muses? It's really difficult because they've got that kind of post-punk angularity that you hear in sort of early XTC and Talking Heads. They've also got some kind of yearning quality that you hear in Patti Smith. But, you know, we're just kind of using these references to give people a bit of a framework to understand it because it doesn't really sound like that because it does have quite a dirty mid-80s indie sound. You know, something, I guess, what they are, I think they might be the missing piece between Patti Smith, Talking Heads and the Pixies. But they've also got something which you're not alluding to, which they've got the kind of math rock thing going on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very complex, uh, rhythmically complex sort of arrangements going on, which are kind of almost, you almost don't notice it when you first, you listen to the music in a very superficial way. You don't realise the complexity. So it's got that kind of Troutmaster replica. It doesn't sound like Troutmaster replica, but that's also true of an album like Trap Master Replica, which you're not necessarily aware of the complexity of the music until you really listen closer mm-hmm. because you're so drawn into Christian Hirsch's, Hirsch's voice and her lyrics yeah. and her delivery that you're not necessarily aware that the music is actually very mathy and quite technical and complex, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think she's part of the key in the sense that she draws you in. It's quite a sort of passionate, alien voice um and so therefore that's your focal point rather than the complexity of the music i mean mm. I, I saw them when they were headline and the pixies were supporting and it was interesting because there were strong similarities between the bands but the the pixies had a much more kind of outgoing rock identity and um and, and live were, were tremendous. You know, Joey Francisco, great guitarist. Whereas throwing muses, oddly, in a live context, were as sealed as they sound. You know, there's something quite enigmatic about throwing muses. So other records this year from from alternative indie scene, uh, Billy Bragg talking with the taxman about poetry. Uh, Felt released a couple of records. We, mm-hmm. we should talk about Lawrence and Felt at some point too, I think. Maybe, again, maybe these are not the records to talk about although they're both good. Uh, R.E.M., Life's Rich Pageant, uh, Strange Times by the Chameleon, uh, Chameleons, I, sh- I beg mm-hmm. your pardon, Your Funeral, My Trial, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, Sound of Confusion by Spaceman 3, Evil by Sonic Youth, uh, Ditto. I, I can't remember if we've talked a lot about Sonic Youth. Again, this wouldn't be the, the album I would choose to talk no. about. I mean, story. the Chameleons, it's arguably their best, actually, because this was the one where they were signed to Geffen, so they had a lot of money, a lot I of promotion. I know nothing about this band at all. I know nothing about this band, so I apologise for not giving you a chance to talk about it. But in my okay. defence, yeah. all the titles on this, you've put stars by the one you wanted to talk about. <laughs> you didn't put a bloody star next to the chameleons, did you? I didn't, I. Did you? Oh, I forgot that. Lax. No, well, this is all I say with the chameleons. It's arguably the best album. They'd signed to a major label. They had, finally, money promotion. And it got played to death, certainly on sort of local Northwest radio. And um, it's great. You know, they don't squander the opportunity of the big budget and the big label. This is not about because we had a lot of this with indie bands who suddenly softened their approach as soon as the money came near them. And I guess the best way to describe chameleons is that they're coming out of that kind of sort of almost cocktails, echo guitar, post punk, you know, the the passions, if you know them. Mm. Um and factory, they've got the aspect <laughs> to their sound. But you can actually hear how Happy Mondays and Stone Roses have also borrowed aspects of their slightly psychedelic guitar influences. And this was just a really strong album okay. for them, I I'll thought. Okay, check it out. 
Yeah. Okay, Tim. So that wraps it up. What are you? No, it doesn't. We haven't done jazz. Kind of an important jazz record is Tutu by Miles Davis. I think it's dated quite badly, but I think at the time it was ve- it was seen as a very, very important record for a jazz musician to be making. It's essentially a pop jazz crossover record, isn't it? Uh, produced by Marcus Miller. Very 80s sounding, which is why I think it hasn't, in, in the worst aspects of 80s mm-hmm. production. And he's doing cover versions of things like Scritti Politti's uh, Perfect Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's kind of, you know, doing that jazz thing, which is that the, j- the jazz, great jazz musicians would always look to popular standards of the day and reinterpret them in their own way. And that tradition had kind of fallen out of fashion, hadn't it, for a while? But yeah, here, yeah. here's Miles. Here's Miles taking contemporary pop songs like the Scritti song. And I think there's another one around this time that isn't on this record, which is his version time of Time After, after time, time. Yeah. yeah. How is this record dated, Tim? I, I don't think it has very well, but how do you feel about it, Neil? I mean, I like you. Yeah, like you, I liked it at the time. It did have a slight sort of Miami Vice cop show funk quality about it, even then, you know. But I didn't mind that. It was more spacious and mysterious. It was a bit like if Miami Vice had a dark episode in which the devil appeared. As as Miles Davis. As Miles Davis, uh, in the form of Miles with his horn. Um, Yeah, it's. uh, I, I still like it. But it has dated because it's got that very airless, treated 1980s production. This is an interesting thing about 86. Maybe we're getting to a point here that these are great albums. On its own terms, he's reinvented that sort of jazz thing that goes back to the 20s, where jazzers did standards or pop songs and made Mm. them their own. But it has such a 1980s sound. It's almost like an end in itself. And a lot of albums from this era... They are almost like ends in themselves because you can't see, actually, did anyone take this further? Did anyone take that further? Mm. You know, beyond Miles Davis and Mandler, I can't think of many albums that sound like Tutu. There's almost that sense of it being an end in itself. But I think, yeah, in itself, it's a good 1980s album. Yeah, it was, I think, yeah, I think, as I said, it was a very important record at the time. Yeah. And sometimes records that are important in their own time for that very reason end up dating quite badly. And, of course, the opposite can be true. Records that kind of made no impression at the time turn out years later to be the most influential and the records that have the most longevity of all. Yeah, exactly. So this is a record... This is the, this is the opposite example of it. It's a record that's very important at the time. It kind of brought jazz back into... Yeah, yeah. ..you know, the consciousness of people that were listening to pop music. Uh, one of the great icons of jazz had made a pop record and a successful pop record. Yeah, sorry, I was yeah, going to say, you know, front cover of The Enemy, The Face and so on. This was really yeah, widely publicised. And just to go on to your point, I think you're right, because, you know, you could argue that what Invisible Touch did for mainstream pop, this did for jazz at the time, yet neither record were remotely influential. Arthur Russell, World of Echo, nobody probably bought at the time, but you can hear it in a lot of Indian singer-songwriter music now. At the other end of the spectrum in jazz, Keith Jarrett, who never embraced 80s production techniques, Mm. as far as I know, released one of his most intimate, homemade, beautiful records of his entire catalogue, which is a fascinating catalogue anyway. Again, you know, going back to the idea of every record having its own kind of sound. uh, Right through the 80s, Keith Jarrett was making records. One minute he'd be making an orchestral record, the next minute a record on a clavichord, the next minute a four LP box set of solo piano improvisations, the next minute a record of standards. 
And this is another record completely different. Again, Spirits, which was a record he made in his home studio, on his Porter studio, playing hand percussion and uh, recorders and African flutes. And I absolutely adore this record. And I think for jazz purists, it was seen as uh, beyond the pale. I think it got very Mm -hmm. bad reviews at the time because it's not really a jazz record at all. It's an improvised, it's almost like a world music record. Okay, great. So, so let's wrap up, Tim. As we always do at the end of the show, we we should. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say what an amazing year that was. I mean, it's like I said to you at the beginning. I was really pleasantly surprised by how many great records came out this year, and and mm-hmm. in what rude form, you know, pop music, not just pop music, so many different genres were in such great yeah. form in the mid eighties. And what a what a wonderful decade, you know. Again, testament to the fact that the eighties was this incredibly creative time. And obviously it's the time you and I were kind of really discovering music. We weren't around at the time to buy records in the 70s, but we were around to buy records at the time in the 80s when they were coming out. And every week it seemed like there was a new revelation and certainly what a great year. So what would you pick, Tim, as your favourite record from 86 and the one that you feel has been the most influential in the long term? It's tough, I know. I, I think this is going to be one of the most tough years. And another album uh, I left, or, or an EP, there's Operating Theatre, were a band who um, were on Mother Records, U2's label, and they produced this indefinable combination of Kate Bush, Bjork to come, and so on, this kind of electronic art pop, which was exceptional. Yeah, in terms of favourites, I'm absolutely struggling, um, I have to say. Um do you want me to go first then? I mean, yeah, I'm, go yeah. first because I just don't think I can do it. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to hedge my bets on my favourite because there are so many. The Colour of Spring, um, okay, definitely. Skylarking, definitely. Parade, definitely. I'm not sure if I could get it down. I couldn't pick one of those three above the above the other two really. You know, and again, so many other great records. You know, the Master of Puppets. Queen is dead. But I'm, I'm going to go with those three on a tie. Influential, I'm going to need a moment to think about. So you pick your favourites. Well, I'm gonna, I, I will go with your three and I will add Gone to Earth and Victoria Land to it, you know, just as things that gave me a great deal of pleasure then and now. So I've got a top five there. And I'm just going to go with two for influential, really. I think... Arthur Russell has quietly become very influential because this was DIY music recorded, you know, possibly in his bedroom in in New York City in the mid 80s. There's a great fragility to it that you can sort of hear in the lo-fi singer songwriters of today, the people like um, Angel Olsen and many others. Um, And then I'd say... The Prince album, because it was so extraordinary, mm. it really did define a lot of production for a few years to come. And people are still kind of um, utilising his combination of sort of R&B, contemporary psychedelia. You can hear him in a lot of the contemporary rap and hip hop music still. I, I agree with you about Parade. That was going to be one of the ones I would say, you know, most influential, just in terms of, as you say, the kind of combination of influences and also the production style. Also, it would be remiss to not mention what shadow. Well, I did already mention in the in the in the program what a shadow master of puppets has cast over the okay, whole yeah. world of metal music ever since, and continues to do so uh, along with Slayer's Rain in Blood. I think Rain in Blood is 
following year it comes out, Rain of Blood. Anyway, or maybe it is 86, in which case we should have really included... I'm going to look this up on the internet now. <laughs> I'm going to cut this bit out. It was 86. It was 86, Tim. Good so God. we should have talked about Rain of Blood. Can I confess, I've never heard Rain of Blood or Rain in Blood or it Rain doesn't, of Blood. It, it doesn't matter. Where were you doing your research <laughs> that didn't have Rain in Blood on the list? I think I was doing anyway, it for my record collection I, initially. Yeah, okay, fair, fair, fair dues, yeah. Well, there we go. Another That was a, that was a good episode, that, I think. And um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please listen to some of the others if you haven't already and give us a good review uh, if you can. If you, if you like what you hear and you enjoy the podcast, you can tell everyone else how wonderful it is listening to two middle-aged men bickering about <laughs> pop music of days gone past, which is what we like to do. So we'll call it a day there, Tim, and look forward to the next show, which hopefully won't be so long in coming along, uh, as they seem to get increasingly longer, the gaps. No, actually, this is only two months. The gap before that was like six months or something ridiculous, yeah. wasn't it? So we're speeding up again. We're gathering, <laughs> gathering pace and momentum again. For now, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye-bye. <laughs>